Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 16. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Eric. Good morning, Redemption. Uh, thank you, Eric, for hosting this morning, for reading, and thank you, Keeley, for your testimony. Um, we just recognize as a church that there are so many stories of how the gospel is working in our lives uh, out there, and we want to hear them, and so that's why we do that uh, every Sunday. Really powerful stuff, moving stuff. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, if you're new today with us, uh, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church Arcadia, one of the 10 congregations in Redemption Church. We're glad that you're here um, if you are looking for more information, again, uh, just head back to the Connect desk. That would be uh, really good for you to do. You can find out more and talk to maybe Tyler James, who's our family pastor and who leads the Start Here class, uh, looking for more information. Uh, we've been going through, as a church, we've been going through since the beginning of the year, uh, the book of Acts, just kind of par uh, paragraph by paragraph. Um, and, and we're going to continue with that. We're in a little bit of a mini-series this week, three weeks on the first missionary journey of Paul and his companions. So we're in the second week of that. And we have a ton of verses to get through. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I've been working very hard on this, trying to figure out how to make sure we can get it in time. But um, uh, just pray for me as I, as I work through this. I'm not eliciting sympathy. I'm just saying, whatever, I'm whining. Okay, so anyway, the reading that, that uh, Eric gave us this morning merely sets us up for Paul's sermon. Uh, Paul is going to preach a sermon in, in the city of Pisidian Antioch, and uh, for the Bible, it's kind of a long sermon. It's, it's not a very long sermon. It's, it's sort of a synopsis, of probably, of, of what he said, but um, we rarely get this kind of detail in the sermons. We're going to find later on that Luke will just say that Paul got up and, and proclaimed Jesus or preached, but we get... We get some detail here today, and it's an interesting sermon, and I want to take us through because it's wonderful. Um, and, and that little paragraph that Eric started us with to set us up, you see that, that Luke starts there with Paul and his companions. So now the shift that we talked about last week is complete. Uh, Barnabas now is just one of the companions. It's no longer Barnabas and Paul. It's now Paul and his companions. So Paul is now the clear leader. And you look at the map again that we showed you last week. They started last week in Antioch, went to Seleucia, to Salamis, to Paphos. And now today they go from Paphos to Perga. They don't really stay in Perga, the, the mainland. They head north about 100 and, I don't know, 20 miles maybe to Pisidian Antioch. And that's where all of today's action takes place. On their way back, they will stop uh, in, in Perga. Uh, this area that they're in today is what you might call modern-day Turkey. So, so you have an idea of where they are. And, and in, embedded in that passage that Eric read is that the fact that John Mark left them. Uh, he decided to leave. And there's much speculation about why he left 
We don't know exactly why he left, if he got homesick or if he got ill or he got scared. We don't know why he left. But again, as I mentioned last week, this becomes the source of a, of a, of a big blow-up in chapter 15 between Paul and Barnabas. And you need really the rest of the New Testament to fully understand uh, the story of, of Paul's relationship with John Mark. So we'll come back to that. They, they land in Perga, like I said. They go to Pisidian Antioch to do their gospel uh, work. Now, you look at that map again. You don't have to show it again, but you saw that they left Antioch, and now they're in Antioch. It's kind of weird. And, and what's really interesting about this is there were actually 16 cities in the first century in that general area that were named Antioch, 16 different cities. And so you would identify the Antioch by its region. So they left Syrian Antioch. Now they're in Pisidian Antioch. But why 16 Antiochs? Well, um, a couple of hundred years earlier, the son of King Antiochus uh, became king, and to honor his father, he just started renaming cities Antioch, Antioch, Antioch. So it'd be kind of like today if we had <clears throat> cities named Obama or Trump or Schwarzenegger or you know, something, something like that. It, here you go. We have a lot of cities named Washington, Jefferson, Madison. So you understand why that is. By the way, for whatever reason, you know how my mind works and I go down these dark holes sometimes. You guys know George Foreman, right? The, okay. You know he has five sons and you know he named them all George. So there's like George Jr., then George III and all that stuff. And so anyway, so that's where my mind goes. Now, it's the Sabbath and they go into the synagogue. So this is Paul's regular um, re regular uh, pattern, he goes into the synagogue, he sits down, and, and everything that happens in the synagogue until Paul gets up to preach is pretty normal. Um, the, the leading elder of the synagogue gets up and he reads out of the law and the prophets, and he probably gives some commentary. So it's like the sermon part. And then as was tradition, as was custom, if the lead elder found out that there was a visiting rabbi in his synagogue, he would then extend an invitation to the visiting rabbi to get up and say a few words. Do you have anything encouraging that you might want to say to us? So let's say some morning we had Jamie Rasmussen from Scottsdale Bible wandered in here and was sitting. At the end of my sermon, I would look at Jamie and I'd say, Jamie, do you have anything that you want to say? And knowing Jamie, he would say, of course I do. I need to fix everything now. So he'd come up and he'd <laughs> kind of talk. But, uh, so, so Paul jumps on this opportunity, of course. And I will say that in some respects, you just have to kind of feel sorry for this elder at this point. He has no idea what door he has opened up and what he's getting himself into. And we're going to go through the sermon that Paul preaches. But as we do that, we should be asking ourselves, I think, three questions. Number one, what is Luke, the author of Acts, trying to accomplish by recording this event? Uh, number two, what is Paul trying to accomplish in his sermon? What's, what's his uh, main point or thrust, and then what's the main point or the big idea of this entire passage, these 40 verses that we look at today? I'm going to answer the, first, the third question first. The big idea today is Jesus. It, it's all pointing to Jesus. Everything every Sunday points to Jesus, but especially today we're going to talk about that. Jesus is God's only intended Redeemer and Savior. It's the only option we have for redemption and salvation and deliverance the only one that God decided to come up with, for our human condition, which, and here you go, for our human condition, which while beautiful, because we are created in God's image, has been marred by sin. 
So we're beautifully created in God's image and after his likeness, but it has been marred by sin. And I would argue that that is in the background of Paul's mind as he gets up to preach this message where he really drills down on Jesus. Luke's purpose, remember he's writing his friend Theophilus. He writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to Theophilus. And his purpose in writing Theophilus and then anybody else who read Luke uh, and Acts is to give us certainty about Jesus as Savior. Everything that he's recording is specifically picked in his narrative to say, look, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, and to encourage us in our faith by recording and testifying to these events. So this passage today, he continues to narrate the first missionary journey of Paul and his companions. He records Paul's sermon, which is a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to show the joy of salvation for those in Pisidian Antioch who did come to Christ, who experienced uh, conversion. And the sermon by Paul is really three things. Uh, if you want to break it down. Number one, it is really heavy on Scripture. The Old Testament prophets bear witness to the reality of Jesus, and he cites a lot of Scripture. It's heavy on history, God's gracious acts in history, and how history also uh, testifies to Jesus as the promised Messiah, and that this is just part of God's uh, giving and generosity and generous character that he just gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. Even when it wasn't in the best interest of people, they would ask for things and he would still give. And then third, uh, Paul specifically claims that there are two ways, and that's it. There's two ways. There's the way of Jesus, and then there is the way that leads to destruction, or the word he uses especially a lot in his sermon is the word corruption. So I want to read through the, the sermon, discuss it as I go, and then, and then we'll stop and make a few points, and then I'm going to come back and finish the passage because there's an aftermath as well to the passage, and, and we'll come back to that and finish that, and then I'll talk a little bit about what was in Paul's mind, I think, as, as well as he preached the sermon. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, this is interesting, Eric even pointed this out today. He said, I, I've seen this now, this motioning with his hand. We saw it in, in Acts chapter 12 when Peter wanted to speak. We're going to see it a couple more times, at least in the book of Acts, that when somebody gets up to speak, they will motion with their hand. I wish I knew what it was, you know, it's like, and that everybody just knew that meant they're going to speak. But in, in our modern-day public speaking, we would call it the attention-getter. Today, we, we might tell a joke. We might, have a, uh, we might um, show a video. We might uh, quote somebody. That's our attention-getter. Their attention-getter was to go, okay, I'm going to talk now. And so, and so Paul says, men of Israel, those of you who are Jewish... And you who fear God, all of the Gentiles, the non-Jews who are here, who are God-fearers, who maybe have been converted to Judaism or are thinking about converting to Judaism. So he's saying, all right, all you Jews and Greeks. And then he just says, listen. And I love this about the way Paul preaches because it's something that I think more contemporary public speakers need to do. And that is, it's okay to give direction to your audience. It's okay to let them know what's expected. He says, listen. You need to listen to this. This is going to be really important. The God of this people, Israel, Yahweh, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So right away, Paul goes into the historical part of his sermon. This part of the sermon is heavy on history. And he starts with the story 
they would know the background in the synagogue. He starts with the story of Joseph, which is the last 13 uh, chapters of the book of Genesis and leads into the book of Exodus. So he's in the Pentateuch now. He's in the Mosaic Law, and he's preaching out of that. And notice he uses the word chose. He said, God is in charge of all of this. God is, the way we say it, God is sovereign. There is, one person says it this way, there is no maverick molecule anywhere in the universe outside of God's sovereignty or control. If there were, he would not be God. If God's not sovereign, if God is not in control, if God doesn't have the ability to choose, then he's not God. So he chose and he led them out of Egypt. And for about 40 years, I love this language here. It's kind of a, it seems a little bit like a snarky dig. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. If you know the story, that they're saved, they're, they're, 400 years they were under the oppression in Egypt and they wanted God to save them. God saves them, takes them out and puts them in the wilderness and now they start whining and complaining that they're in the wilderness and many of them want to go back to Egypt and go back into, into servitude. So God put up with them during that time in the wilderness, about 40 years. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, now we're into Joshua. So we're past the, the, the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now we're already into Joshua. Uh, in the land of Canaan, God gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. The people of Israel asked for, we want to be like other nations that have a king. And God said, I don't know. But then God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So again, God gave and gave and gave. God is a generous God. God gives and gives and gives and gives because he, he loves us. So he gave him Saul. Saul wasn't the greatest king in the world. And so when God had Saul removed, he raised up David to be their king. And David becomes the benchmark. David becomes the bellwether. Uh, David becomes the king the person in Israel that everybody gets measured against because of his goodness, and he becomes the bellwether in the sense that he is also the one who stands ready to help us understand that the Messiah is eventually coming because the Messiah is going to come from David's line. So he's the benchmark and he's the bellwether. So he raised up David to be their king, of whom God testified instead and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So now, Paul skips from David. Everybody knows David. Everybody knows how important David is. He skips from him a thousand years, and he says, and now we're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the one that came from David's line. Jesus is the one that is born of God, and he begins to talk about Jesus. And, and he starts to enter this section of the, of the sermon where he says, Jesus is our rescuer, and there is no other rescuer. And he enters the section of his sermon when he begins to use a lot of scripture to make his argument his logical, rational argument that, that, don't miss this, Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. And so, um, before he, he says, uh, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So, Paul stops and talks just a minute about John the, baptism, uh, John the Baptist, because he thinks he's an important part of this historical story. So, he tells them a little bit about John. 
And as John was finishing his course, as he was finishing his ministry, he said to the people, because the people were looking at John the Baptist saying, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised Messiah? And John the Baptist answers this question. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. John the Baptist, I think, is really famous for saying two critically important things during his ministry. The first one is in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, where he says of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. I'll tell you, years ago when I first got involved in church life, when I was about 30 years old, the big thing was to have a life verse. Everybody had a life verse. I don't know if you remember that. I don't hear that very much anymore, but everybody had a life verse. And and I got to tell you, this should really be the life verse of everybody. He must increase and we must decrease, because that is the gospel right there. He is the one who saves us, not us. The second thing that John says that's so important is he says, it's not me, but there is one who's coming, and I, you think I'm worthy? I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And that's a reference, a cultural reference, to the fact that the lowest level of servitude, of employment, however you want to describe it in their culture, the absolute lowest level, you couldn't get any entry level lower than this was to be the person in the house that took care of somebody's feet. It was a terrible job. You had to, and it, the roads were all very dusty. They wore these sandals. And so you were in charge of putting the person's shoes on, taking them off, and cleaning their feet. It was the job that nobody wanted and everybody wanted to get promoted out of. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. So he's making this incredible point about how worthy Jesus really is. So very important. And then he gets into this section of the, of the passage where... Uh, He gets into the scripture and he says, Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, the Jews, and those among you who fear God, the Gentiles, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. We are here in Antioch of Pisidia to bring you this good news, this message of salvation that is contained in Jesus. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So this is very, Paul points out the irony of the fact that those ruling Jewish uh, religious people in Jerusalem who read the scriptures every single Sabbath day, every Saturday, they were reading about the Messiah to come, they didn't see him. They didn't see that Jesus, he says, this is really ironic. And then, in fact, they went so far as to fulfill Isaiah 53, to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah by sending him to the cross. This, again, is is Paul, in a somewhat nice way, kind of giving a dig to people who are spiritually blind, to the truth that is completely obvious right in front of you. So he says, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, the Roman governor, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And again, 
the irony there that they are actually walking out in their lives what had been prophesied in their own scriptures that they teach every Sabbath. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he begins now this argument of why Jesus is so different than David. Jesus is a truer and better David. David's still in the ground. Jesus is raised from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. There is so much irony here that Paul's the one preaching this. It is likely that Paul was in Jerusalem when Jesus was being crucified and he was saying, go, let's get him dead. Let's crucify this guy. I'm done with this Jesus guy. And now he's actually out proclaiming Jesus as the Savior and planting these churches. It's pretty amazing. He says, as it was also written in the second psalm. So now he starts quoting the scriptures. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he, he's saying Jesus is born of the Father. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. You know that whole saying in Numbers, uh, dust to dust, from dust we came to dust we will go? Okay? Jesus didn't come from dust, and he's not going to dust. He's not, he's not going to corruption the way King David did. David eventually went to corruption. And then he quotes Isaiah 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, but not the sin. Remember, David was great, and David was a man after God's heart, Paul says here in this sermon, but David was also a sinner, the biggest sin of which may have been that whole Bathsheba thing, which you can read about in 2 Samuel. Therefore, he also says another, another psalm, so Paul's on a roll now with the Old Testament scriptures, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's Psalm 16. And this is what ultimately makes him Lord. He's raised from the dead. Who else can claim that? And if Jesus is raised, why wouldn't you listen to his word? If Jesus is raised, why wouldn't you believe what the Bible has to say? That's a critical question for us to ask ourselves. Do we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Yes. Then we also need to listen to what he has to say. We need to listen to his word. And Paul believes that. Paul believes that. And then he talks about David and the corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He's still in his tomb, so to speak. He never got out. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. If he's raised from the dead, he can forgive sins. Amen? That's what he's saying. And he's saying, David was great, but Jesus is a truer and better David. In fact, he's a perfect David. Okay? And by him, everyone who believes is freed. That word I'll come back to. It's an important word. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, them as fighting words in a synagogue. I'm telling you. So now he's really stepped into it. Okay? But he uses that word freed. That word freed literally means justified or proclaimed innocent. Proclaimed innocent. In other words, it's not that you're not guilty. You're proclaimed innocent in Christ. It's as if you hadn't ever sinned. This is good. You stand in Christ before God. He doesn't see that you are a sinner who's been redeemed as much as he's seen that you are in Christ. 
and that you really haven't sinned in the first place. That's how holy we are. That's the good news of the gospel. And you couldn't be freed by the law of Moses. You're declared innocent. You're not declared innocent by the law. In fact, the law condemns us. You're not declared innocent by morality. You're not declared innocent by education. You're not declared innocent by piety. You are declared innocent by one thing, and that is Jesus raised from the tomb, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then he ends his sermon this way, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes the prophet, prophet Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I know this is true, but I also know that some of you won't believe it. Because the prophet said that some of you won't believe it. And he says, the prophets even call you scoffers. You're scoffing at this, you're making fun of it, and yet you're going to perish. Don't become one of those scoffers who is going to perish. But we also understand that the reason for this is that the resurrection is really disruptive. The gospel is really disruptive. The resurrection disrupts us. It disrupts the status quo. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you've built your whole life on not believing the resurrection, you have a status quo in your life, kind of a standard operating procedure. Now you believe the resurrection, that's going to change everything. It disrupts our intelligence. You don't believe in the resurrection, and now you have to wrestle with the fact that God did something supernatural outside of the scientific laws. Now you have to wrestle with that. That's disruptive to our intellect. It's disruptive to our economy. We're going to see... Story after story after story of Paul going into cities and people wanting to kick him out because it's ruining their economy and their business. If this is true, then we can't sell our trinkets and our idols. So it disrupts our economy. The, the resurrection is disruptive. I understand why this is hard. Paul understood why it was hard. But it's interesting. He preaches the whole gospel. He gives us the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, but he also gives us a warning. He says there's no good news unless there's bad news. And the bad news is that we might reject this. We might walk away from it. Let's also acknowledge here, I, I like to do this kind of stuff. Paul's rabbinic training is coming through beautifully here. The constant citations of scripture to show God's promises, truth, work, and grace. Paul uh, today would have been, he, he would have written a wonderful term paper with all the right citations and bibliographies and all of that. But, but here's the other thing about Paul. He's also passionate while he's very diligent. He has both diligence and passion, and that is a great combination. You ever see somebody with all the passion in the world but absolutely no di diligence? Ultimately, they're not effective. And the reason is because they're only running on emotion and they're not concerned with facts or evidence or truth or rational arguments or anything like that. And ultimately, they might burn brightly for a short time, but then they flame out because it's not sustainable. But then have you ever seen anybody with great diligence and no passion? They might get the job done, but they're not exactly somebody you want to go to dinner and a movie with. Amen? So Paul has the upside of both of these qualities. He's got his arguments set. He, he, he appeals to the cognitive side of our brains, but he's also passionate. He is sold out. He sets himself on fire. And then we look at how this ended up, the last 11 verses, verses 42 through 52. 
And as they went out from the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. How's that? You're the lead elder, and they're begging that Paul come back and talk next week. (laughs) Kind of feel like that when Cody preaches. I wish Cody would come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. See, I love that point, too. We think of the grace of God primarily as saving grace. And what we don't think about is the grace of God as often, and we should, is the grace and the power to be able to live, sanctifying grace. The grace of God not only saves us, but it leads us on our journey to sanctification as well. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city shows up. Now understand, Pisidian Antioch had a, had a pretty strong population of, of Jewish people, but primarily it was a Gentile city. So now what you have is you have thousands of non-Jews showing up to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. This can't be good in terms of the religious professionals who are already there. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling them. You see, the resurrection is disruptive. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Just reminds me of Romans 1.16, where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I'll do whatever it takes to preach it, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, which is exactly what happens here. Saying it was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Those are strong words for the Jews that are there. So behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah 49 and 42. It's kind of a conflation. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, they believed. That, that, word, that term, eternal life, is used twice there. And that's an important term. Because literally what it means is not necessarily life after death, although it does mean that. But it really, what, what Paul is talking about is you have gained entrance into the kingdom of God right now. And that is why the Gentiles are celebrating this thing that, that the Jews were guarding so hard with their law and with circumcision and their traditions Paul is saying, this gate is wide open to you now through Jesus Christ. And so they begin to celebrate with joy that they they now have entrance into eternal life, into the kingdom of God now, not just later. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leaders of the men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they continue in the grace of God. The eternal life is now granted to uh, not only the Jews who believe, but also the Gentiles. And and he cites that uh, Isaiah 49 and 42. Let me just read to you from Isaiah 42 because there's some irony here as well. Uh, God says this in Isaiah 42, 6 through 8. I am the Lord... I have called you, Israel, to righteousness, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, a light for all the nations, 
to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. The irony of verse 47 is that Israel, in this case, in Pisidian Antioch, they become the light to the Gentiles by rejecting God's Messiah. There's some irony for you right there. And, and I think, I would guess that Luke has in his mind at this time, because he wrote the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 4, he records Jesus going into the synagogue and preaching in the synagogue. And one of the things he says in the synagogue, when they begin to push back against Jesus as the one who is the anointed one, the Messiah, when they begin to push back, he says, you know, Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Second Kings talks about a time during the prophet Elisha's ministry when there was no salvation in Israel, but in fact, Naaman, the Syrian, was saved. And, and there's great irony there as well because Naaman was a great Syrian general who used to attack the people of God and beat them militarily. And he's saying he got saved during Elisha's uh, ministry, but the people of Israel didn't. And so this is kind of what's happening here. You're rejecting what God has for you, and as a result, now the Gentiles are coming into salvation. That's, that's really strong stuff. And then verse 51 says that they shook the dust from their feet. We'll run into other variations of this later in the book of Acts. What does it mean? Uh, one way to say it is that you and I can never win a salvation argument with somebody. We can present, we can proclaim, we can even argue logically as Paul does here, but ultimately the results are going to be up to God to convert the heart. And, and, and what happens here is, is God is essentially releasing them to move on. He's saying, okay, you've done what you can. I'm done here for now, and you can move on. And shaking their dust off the feet is symbolic of saying, all right, we're done with you. We're moving on. It seems a little bit harsh. I understand that. But, but you and I sometimes get into that situation. We've been talking to somebody and talking to somebody and talking to somebody, and you get to a point where you're like, I don't think the Spirit's working here. I need to maybe start talking to other people. And so we do whatever our version is of shaking the dust off our feet. But I want to say this about the dust or, or moving on. We need to remember two things important about this. Number one, it must be done over the lordship of Christ. Ultimately, what divides us has to be Jesus. It can't be anything else like our pugilistic personalities I'm one that's had to really come to grips with this, I will tell you. I just confess that, okay? Some of us need to learn the hard way for sure, but I become more and more convicted of this over time. If you're going to disagree, it has to be about Jesus and nothing else. Here's the second thing. Even after we dust off our feet, it may not be over. This is the part that I love the best. We may walk away, but it doesn't necessarily mean that God is done with that situation. We need to be prepared possibly Weeks, months, even years later to re-engage. Or to find out later that somebody else got to close the deal on God's behalf. That we were, we were tilling the soil, but somebody else comes in and, and, and for the harvest. I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. And, and one of my favorite things, even now, frankly, is, is, is when somebody who hasn't seen me or talked to me or known anything about me since my early 20s or my teens, when they find out that I'm a pastor, their reaction is, I can't believe he's a Christian, let alone a pastor. <laughs> and, and these are people who used to tell me about Jesus. 
and they shook their dust off from me. And so we need to remember that God can still work. So I want to close by talking about maybe deep in the background, what's Paul's frame of mind? And it's about Jesus, but I want to hit this because I think it's, I think it's important for us to consider this. I've said this many times. I'll continue to say it. If we don't understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to have a hard time understanding the rest of the Bible. That's just the way it is. That's a great place to start. It's the creation narrative followed by the story of the original sin, the fall. And, and, and I know people have trouble with the creation narrative, and, and I get that. What a lot of people don't realize is that it's not the only creation narrative out there, especially during that sort of that time in history. Lots of creation narratives, lots of them. The interesting thing about crea- most creation narratives is that they're all pretty similar. Uh, they're all similar in the fact that there's, there's many gods, there's a pantheon, there's a god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of uh, agriculture, the god of the economy, the god of sex, the god of all these different, uh, all these different gods, and that, and that ultimately the gods are there to bless man and to benefit man, but man has to do his part by making sure that we service the gods, and that's kind of, it's a transactional relationship, generally speaking. But you read the creation narrative in the Bible and what you realize is that it's like no other creation narrative. And in fact, you could even argue that it's written as a polemic against the other creation narratives. Just one tiny little example. I could go on for two hours about this, but one tiny little example is in chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. You're going through the days of creation and God gets to the point where he creates the sun and the moon, but he doesn't call him the sun and the moon. What does he call him? He calls him the greater light and the lesser light. And the reason he does that is, number one, to point out the sun and the moon are not gods. I created them. They're just the sun and the moon. And the second thing is, the name isn't even important. I want to make sure you understand that they're not gods. I'm not even going to call them by names. I'm going to let Adam and the rest of the human beings figure that out. They're just the greater light and the lesser light. This is clearly saying the sun is not a god, the moon is not a god, and neither are these other things. And then he gets to Genesis 2 and... and we have a, a sort of more detail about the creation, like the woman gets created during Genesis 2, and we have the Garden of Eden described. And one of the things I love about the Garden of Eden is if you understand the Hebrew word translated Eden, it literally means delight. It's a garden of delight. And then the thing about the garden, we hear that word garden, the English word garden, and we think of our backyards with a couple little rolls with tomatoes and, and, and cucumbers that you end up giving to your neighbors because you don't want to eat them yourself. And that's not what what the garden was. The garden was huge and robust and substantial. Here you go. If you've ever been to New York, think Central Park, a mile wide, six miles long. So when you hear the Garden of Eden, it was Central Park of delight. That's what we're thinking. It was big and robust and, and, and wonderful. And then at the end of this, before the sin comes, the last two verses of chapter 2 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's so much behind that text there that that mostly talks about the tremendous intimacy that we can have when sin isn't involved in the picture, the transparency and the vulnerability that we have in a perfect world, in paradise, with no sin. They had uncorrupted intimacy with creation, They had uncorrupted intimacy with themselves. They had uncorrupted intimacy with others, with the the animals as well, and they had uncorrupted intimacy with God. 
You know the conversations that we're constantly having today about trust and hegemony and hiddenness and oppression and deceit and privilege? Prior to Genesis 3, those conversations would have made no sense to Adam and Eve. It was, what are you talking about? And yet those are the things that we deal with today. But then Genesis comes along. And, and the sultan of subtle sidles up next to Eve and starts his ruse. Did God really say? And she starts to defend God and she answers and he, he lures her into this conversation and then boom, he hits her with the doubt. God just doesn't want you to know everything that he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. And she begins to think. And now she's looking at that tree, which was in the midst of the garden, way, way over there. We think it was right there, constantly tempting her. No, it was over there. And now he's drawn her attention to it. Now he's over there. she's over there looking, and we have the triad of temptation. It was good to eat. It appealed to her flesh. It was a delight to her eyes. We love looking at it. And, and it was desired to make her feel superior over everybody else. And so she took the fruit and she ate it. And immediately there was a loss of intimacy and transparency. Immediately. They covered themselves and they hid from God. That's the world we live in today. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And God gives the curses and understand these curses are representative, not comprehensive. He tells the serpent, you've lost, but not quite yet. He tells the woman that all of your relationships are going to be a mess now. And he tells the man that everything that you find your identity and your purpose in, that's going to be marred and hard now. We are created in God's image, which is beautiful. But we've been marred and disrupted by sin. It's a reality that you and I have to deal with because it's in our lives every single day and we try to deny it and we try to paste over it. But Paul reminds us that in the midst of that, Jesus has always been God's plan. That's what his sermon is about. Jesus has always been God's plan. All the promises of God are culminated in Jesus, not the law. Though the law is good and helpful, God gave us the law out of love because we need limits and guidelines, but we can't find salvation in it, nor in morality or piety, nor in self-actualization, which I don't even know what that means, but we're supposed to be pursuing it. And I, I talk a lot about the tension of the Christian faith. This is the greatest tension right here, created in God's image, but marred by sin. That is the greatest tension that there is. But Genesis 3.15, right after the rebellion, God gives us his plan. He says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The language of bruising a heel means you're going to wound somebody. The language of bruising your head means you're going to destroy somebody. Satan wounded Christ by sending him to the cross. He was wounded on the cross. But Jesus destroyed Satan by being raised from the tomb. And that's the victory that we live in. And Paul says in Romans 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do for us by sending his son for us. That's the joy and the victory that we live in. That's Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we especially thank you for this, this word of Jesus. 
that was brought by Paul into Pisidian Antioch and that many believed. God, we thank you for your work there. We thank you for your work here, for all that you're doing. God, we pray that you would uh, continue to fill us with your spirit and bless us. God, help us to live in reality, but also in the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.